As I said, we are in part 11 of our Empowered Church series, walking through the book of Acts line by line, and I entitled today's message, Effective Leadership. And I want to start by talking a little bit about how the local church works. Now, I don't know if you think about this stuff. I have to think about it all the time because of my job. But have you ever kind of just sat back and thought, why are there so many different kinds of churches, right? I mean, we live in the greater Sacramento area where we are blessed, where we have a lot of very healthy, vibrant churches. I mean, Bridgeway is not the only God's house in town, man. I mean, we are surrounded by great leaders and great churches, and, and, and man, I'm so happy to call them our brothers and sisters, and we're all on the same page. But you gotta admit, we're all really different, right? I mean, you know when you walk into one church, it feels very different than walking into another church, and yet, we all have the same vision. Is that correct? I mean, our job is to be the body of Christ. We all have the same vision. As a matter of fact, if you boil it down, all churches really only do three things. Fish, feed, and worship, right? I mean, is, uh, fish, feed, and worship. What do I mean? Fish, that you're sharing the gospel, right? I mean, evangelism's got to be part of it, right? You're, Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which is lost, and if we're going to do what he does, man, there's got to be an element of that. Then the feed part is equipping one another to the wholeness of Jesus Christ. In other words, that's discipleship. There's got to be some element of growing up and being transformed. And then, of course, worship is lifting up the great name of God. Fish, feed, worship. We're all doing that. So how did we get so many different ones? I mean, if you think about it, all churches, I believe, are called to be healthy, right? I mean, because it, it doesn't matter really the style of the church. It doesn't really matter the size of the church. What really matters is, is it a healthy house? Is it a healthy church? And you go, well, what's healthy to you? I don't, I don't think we have to guess. I think it's Jesus, right? If you can find what you're doing in your church any given church, in the life of Christ, we're on the right track. But that still leaves an awful lot of openness. Yes, we all need to be unified. Yes, we all need to be loving, right? I mean, there's no, you don't really have a Christian church if love is not present. You understand what I'm talking about? That's just a country club. That's something else, but it ain't church, yeah? So why are there so many different ones? I'm going to suggest to you, it's the point. I truly believe that God disciples regions. If I told you, turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, where's the city of Galatia? It's actually not a city. It's actually a large region in modern-day Turkey. And what he was saying when he wrote there is he's like, hey, you guys, meaning you group of churches, I have something to say to you. He was looking at them, Paul was looking at them holistically. And what's intriguing to me is I truly believe that God disciples regions where he maps out what do my creation need in this area, and then he sprinkles in all these different churches in order to meet different needs in different ways. I think that if we look at it from his perspective, it looks like a beautiful mosaic that is whole and healthy. Unfortunately, when we look through tiny little tunnel lenses, we look at every individual church and go, well, it's lacking this and it's lacking that. You are never going to go to a church that has everything. You know what I'm saying? Like, so there's so many people are always looking for the niche that you're in, right? Man, you guys have like a, like a surfing ministry for nuns. We're like, uh... Probably need to go to SoCal for that. Like that's, 
it's really cold water here. You know, no, no, we don't have that. It shouldn't be a niche of every sort. There's certain things that we are to do that's in our assignment, that's in our lane. And then if you go, man, I really need to use my gifts in this way. All right, God may have you in a different body of believers. That, there's nothing wrong with that. What makes the difference? I believe Every church has a different culture, but I believe the size and ultimate style of the church is the calling and anointing of God. You know, I, I think that all the different churches are really on purpose. We need big churches, we need small churches, we need medium-sized churches. We need churches even that sometimes are homogenous. We need, you know, we need black churches, we need Latino churches. You, you see what I'm saying? Like there, there's different beautiful things about some churches that are focused on discipleship, some churches that are focused more on evangelism, some churches are focused more on apologetics or worship, things like that. And I truly believe the size of a church is based on assignment from God. It is not, the size of a church is not an indicator of its health. The size of a church is designed by what is God asking you to do. Because here's what's interesting. I know y'all, we're really biased. We're a little bit, we don't see things quite the way they are here in California. And here's what I mean. Anybody know the average size of the church, Christian church in America? Anybody know the average size? It's 90. 90 people is the average size of church in America. Now, the West Coast is higher. The average size of church on the West Coast is 110 people. Now, Mega churches are largely in three states, Texas, Georgia, and California. If you're in any of those states, you start thinking big church is normal. It is not normal. It's very rare. As a matter of, a matter of fact, the church of this size is very, very unusual. Most churches are much more smaller and more manageable. Now, why is that? Why does God have so many small churches? Have they failed to do something? No, I believe they're following their assignment. I believe that there must be a number of smaller churches so that people feel seen, people feel known. I believe that there's power in small churches. We're going to talk in a moment about church growth, and you would say, well, have they failed to do church growth? No, 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 they haven't. I believe they're carrying out their assignment. The reason why I'm highlighting all this is I think for the first 10 years of my pastoral ministry for this church, I don't think I fully appreciated that there is no one right way to do church. I felt like I looked at the Bible and I was like, okay, all of us as leaders and pastors, we're all heading towards the exact same direction. So we're all either closer or further away from God's intention for his church. When you believe there is one way to do church, then you're always assessing everyone else in a judgmental way to say they're either more like you or less like you. And I don't think that's a healthy way to look at it. I think you cannot celebrate diversity until you understand diversity is always the intention. I don't think you can celebrate the church down the road being different from you if you don't realize we need churches that are different from one another. We don't need constant duplication, everything's the same. We don't need that in people, and we certainly don't need that in churches. Diversity is the point. Now, 
what makes most churches feel different, right? Because you realize, even though a lot of churches may be similar, there's a lot of discipleship-based churches, a lot of evangelism-based churches, but they feel really different, right? You walk in, what you're talking about is church culture. Church culture is varying from church to church. It's the vibe, it's the ethos, it's the atmosphere that you walk in and feel right away. So things that are important here at Bridgeway that make up our culture are things like humor, right? I mean, I can't be serious for too long. Like if I talk about God, I get all intense and ferocious, right? But if I'm talking about us and people, we don't take ourselves all that serious. If you're not God, you're not a big deal. Does that make sense? I mean, just think through that lens, right? And for me, because I've had to deal with a lot of fear in my life growing up throughout because of different mental health issues, humor for me is a stress reliever. I need that valve to release the pressure that's going on in my head. So for me, I'm constantly joking around and screwing around because that allows me to be more peaceful and more joyful. And some people are like, man, you know, I really like church to be a little bit more serious. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's why I gave you directions to another one. <laughs> Does that make sense? Right? <laughs> for better or for worse, right? Um, Another thing that's really important to us is authenticity, right? It's this idea that whoever's going to be on the stage better be open and honest about who they are. If they come across with this kind of holier-than-thou or they got it all figured out, and they're, they're probably not going to be allowed back. Does that make sense? Like, you got to be, and here's the reason why authenticity is so important. You cannot grow from where you're pretending to be. You can only grow from where you're really at. So if we put on a mask, it's going to ruin our transformation. And that ultimately is the only measure, the only metric that matters here at Bridgeway. If you want to know why we do what we do, we're always seeking for the same metric, transformed lives. Because it's the only thing that we can think of that's our job that man can't do. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I don't want to know all the other metrics because you can fake those. You can't fake a transformed life. Either it's the Holy Spirit or it's not. And if it's the Holy Spirit and He's transforming lives in our midst, that means He's here. And if He's here, we're good. Amen? That's Praise God. You know, one other thing that I'll highlight about our culture that we try to sow in is an atmosphere of grace. You'll notice that we don't talk about things in a very, very harsh way about people. For example, uh, where we try to really stay away from things that are very hardcore rules-based, legalistic, judgmental, stuff like that. Because what we believe is everybody's already broken. There's nobody that has it all together here. And if you are, you should leave. <laughs> there is nobody that has it all together. We're all broken, but we're in a transformation process. What we're saying is while we're transforming into Jesus, can we do it together? That means we have to have a little bit of room to grow, right? If we're on each other's case all the time, can't believe you're doing that, can't believe you're doing that, can't believe, well, why can't you believe that? I'm a messed up individual. I'm doing my best. The Lord is working on me, amen? So we try to create this atmosphere where there's a little bit more room to figure stuff out. Okay, all of that creates what's called culture. How am I supposed to, as the primary culture designer, how am I to be sure that you're going to experience that same culture no matter where you go on the campus? How am I supposed to assure that it happens in kids' way? How am I to assure that it's going to happen in our women's ministry? How am I going to assure it's going to happen in our arts ministry? Because I can't be everywhere, right? 
So the answer is very simple. I have to gather around me leaders that share a similar heart. Does that make sense? So literally, I select out leaders that kind of see it a similar way. I actually shift out leaders that do not. So, you know, have you ever heard when you do hiring, you should always hire and examine three areas, character, competency, and chemistry. Have you heard this? We hire for character first. We hire chemistry second. We hire competency last. You're like, I know. Okay, hold on. <laughs> no, 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 hold on. Like there's leaders that you can grab that are like the best at everything, effectiveness and efficiency and that, you know, they could be, but if they don't love the Lord and they don't love people, I can't use them. They may be so gifted and so talented and so amazing, I can't use you because I must be able to trust you with the people I love the most. Does that make sense? So what happens is, is we gather together and I start realizing if I have those leaders with that heart, then that means that spirit's going to be everywhere across our campus. And that's so important because the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Great leadership leads to a healthy church. Great leadership leads to a healthy church. Notice I did not say great leadership leads to a big church. I did not say great leadership leads to a wealthy church. And all those things may or may not be the case doesn't matter. What we're really shooting for is healthy. Because if it's healthy, then God can flow, right? All right, so can you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. If you need a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. It's page 914, 914. You can get there a little bit quicker. Now, we took a break last week, as I said, with Aaron Pierce of Steiger International Ministries. He preached last week, so to get back into our story, we got to jump one more week past that in part 10. And here's where we're at in the story. The early Christian church is this fledgling movement, but it is exploding. Like there are miracles happening and demons are getting cast out and people are getting healed and people are coming from all over the place and it says multitudes are coming to the church. So they're having rapid influence, right? So now everybody's coming in, the church is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. Well, this gets the attention of the religious leaders. And they're like, whoa, whoa, hold up. This is messed up. We killed the Jesus guy. Why are his people thriving so much? We need to shut it down. They would beat them and they would throw them in jail and they would do all these things. So the last time we were together, they grabbed all the apostles, all the 12 big dogs, threw them all in jail. And what happened? An angel in the middle of the night lets them all out to go back and preach again. And the leaders are like, oh my gosh, it's like whack-a-mole. Like no matter how many times we hit these guys, they keep popping up everywhere else. It's like we can't seem to shut them down. And they're talking about we should kill them, we should beat them, we should do this. And one guy stands up in their like Supreme Court and he's like, hey guys, listen, I'm not saying I'm pro this Christian movement. Honestly, I have no idea at this point. What I'm telling you is, we need to be very careful here, because if indeed this movement is from God and we're on the other side, that's going to be messed up. So here's what I'm going to recommend to you. Back off. I get it. It's freaking me out. It's freaking you out. Back off. Let's figure out if God wants to step in, he can shut it down, or if he doesn't, that's on him. 
That's my advice. And they were like, oh, oh, all right, well, you got a point. But we can still beat them up, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. No, they're, so they beat them all, you know, and then they, they release them out. And the, those guys go out, and they're like, woo, got beat for Jesus. And they're all fired up, and things are going awesome. They're having this Jesus revolution, this revival, and everything looks awesome from the outside. And then this happens. And this is why we're at chapter 6. Here we go. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, or the Greek speakers, arose against the Hebrews, or the Jewish ones. Because their widows, the Hellenist widows, the Greek-speaking widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution, obviously distribution of food and support. Okay, let's pause. It says, they were increasing. Things were going really well. They were getting bigger. And many of us think bigger is better. That is incorrect. Bigger, when it comes to church, means more people. More people means more problems. Yeah? More people means more complexity. It means more mess. The more people you have, the more opportunities for someone to rub somebody else the wrong way. The way you have more chances of clash, you have more chances of differing opinions, you have more chances of a church split, you have more chances of all these things. That's kind of what happens. And so you would say, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, so you're telling me bigger is not better, but, but pastor, you talk about, and, you, and you, you actually, you got education in this, in church growth. Why do you keep talking about church growth? Which, side note, there are some of you in your personality, when I talk about church growth, you're like, yeah, bring it on. And then there's some of you who are like, oh, heck no. And here's why. Like, we have, did you know we have a Saturday night 6 o'clock service? That is our service for all our introverts. <laughs> it's our smallest service, and they sit 10 seats away from each other. They're like, don't get near me. What is wrong with you? And they all feel like, I love this small church bridgeway. It's super cute, right? And they're like, this is my buddy church, you know, and it's super awesome. So like those folks, like if I was talking about church growth, they're like, they better not sit in my seat. Stay home, right? You know, and you're like, hold on, hold on. And then you go, well, pastor, you just mentioned that most churches are very small. So do they need to get bigger? No, no, no. I said they need to focus on church growth. You're like, well, okay, I don't really get it. How can they focus on church growth but not grow? Hold on. The reason why we focus on church growth is healthy organisms grow. If they don't, something's deficient or wrong. If a church does not have fresh blood flowing through it, it becomes a country club and we become monsters. We need to focus on church growth so we remain healthy. And you go, but how, if their assignment is to have a church of 35 people, how can they do church growth? Here's how it looks. You're constantly working on outreach, outreach, outreach. But if the Lord assigned you 35, he's going to have you train them up and they're going to go somewhere else. That's very hard to have that as a job, as your assignment. But that might be your very assignment. They may not stay in your midst. You may have a calling of God to remain at 35, and he's going to make sure you stay at 35. But your job is to keep reaching out, keep raising up, keep discipling. Why? Because if you don't, you're going to fall apart. We must always be focused on growth, always focused on reaching out, always focused on bringing people in, and then you let God sort it out. That is not on you. That's on God. So it says we have a clash. 
Greek speakers versus Jewish, right? Now, the problem with that is they're actually two different kind of ethnic groups. They're actually two different cultures. And we're having a clash, which, by the way, how encouraging that the early church had problems in it too, amen? Like whenever you're a leader and you're like, man, my church has so many issues, and you're like, well, Peter and John had issues. We don't need to panic over it. We got to solve it, no question. But we don't need to say if we have problems, something's wrong. Y'all, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It means we need to calm down and have dialogue about it. Boy, we have lost the art of dialogue today. You know what? We've had this whole idea where we make all these assumptions. The minute somebody says something we disagree with, we automatically already know where they're going to go with it, and we just shut them down. That's not healthy. We've got to learn the art of dialogue again. We have to talk through some issues. Yeah, but they're wrong. Okay, cool. Slow down. Because what if they need to know you care about them to listen to you? You can't share that when you just shut somebody out and cancel them out. You can't do that. We've got to have more dialogue. So sure enough, this happens. Now, is this going to be a problem? Yes. If they don't address this, this could get really nasty. Why? Because we ultimately have a, a, a racist situation going on. We ultimately have an ethnic clash that you literally have a bias in the church towards one group versus another one. And that's kind of messed up. We're talking about distribution of food. This is stuff people are living on. This is critical. And it's the widows, the very group, the church was like, you better take care of orphans and widows. You better take care of orphans and widows. Better take care of orphans and widows. This is a critical group, and some are getting ignored. Why are they getting ignored? Because the movement started totally Jewish. All the leadership is super Jewish, and so now all their connections are Jewish, and now so-and-so knows so-and-so, and that was his mom, and then she became a widow, and now they're taking care of them, and oh, the Greek people, well, they're kind of new to our church, and they weren't taking care of them enough. That's a big deal. You know what would happen if we just let human nature take its toll? Here's what would happen. Church split immediately. Why? Man, I'm Greek-speaking. This church doesn't appreciate me. They don't know me. They don't understand me. They're ignoring my, my mom, and that's messed up. We're just going to separate. We're going to have a Hellenist, Greek-speaking Christian church, and then we're going to have the Jewish, Hebrew-speaking church. That's how it would happen today, right? Everybody wants to be around everybody just like them, just like them, just like them. You can't do that. If you are only around people like you, you will not grow. Diversity forces difference. It forces clash. It forces debate. But it forces growth. You cannot only hang out with people in your same socioeconomic strata. You cannot only hang out with people that share your political views. You cannot only hang out with people of the same ethnicity. You cannot simply hang out with people that are just like you because it's not going to stretch you the way you need to be stretched. You can't have iron sharpening iron if there's not enough difference. Y'all, we've got to do that. We've got to mix it up. It's the point. It's how God grows us. So sure enough, we have a problem and it gets solved. But while we have this problem, somebody's got to fix it. So who's going to fix it? Well, here's what's interesting. In my opinion, 
I think I know who fixed it, and I don't think it was an apostle. I'm going to tell you why in a moment. Do you realize that not all churches are ruined because of scandal of a pastor? The majority of churches are ruined by poor administration. How do I know that? Because church plants don't work very well. Why? You end up getting a charismatic leader, somebody that is really strong and a beautiful communicator. They come out with fire. They gather a bunch of people around them, and then people aren't cared for, and they start to drive away. They come out hot. They're able to lead from the stage, but no one is making sure that things are legal behind the scenes. Do you know how many churches have been taken down because of financial impropriety? Those are all administrative issues. They're not something that somebody did that was, that was some affair or something like that. It was literally poor management ruins churches. That's what all these elder boards sometimes will argue about, and the deacon boards will argue about, and this will be a problem, and this is financially wrong. What is the problem? The problem is the people with the administrative gifts are not being appreciated or they're not stepping up. i got to tell you this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, while all these other spiritual gifts are being listed, one shows up and it's called administration. If that is your gift, the church desperately needs you. And I'm going to tell you why. Here at Bridgeway, every department needs you. Every ministry needs you. Because every leader that can usually get the combo pack of teaching gifts usually doesn't get the administrative gifts. So those people know how to do this and gather. We need you to be the partner that keeps it healthy and strong. We need the person that can come in. This gift is a lot about strategy. We need someone that can come in and can go, you know what? I'll take that vision and I know how to implement it. We need those partners together. But too often, you don't see those names written down in Scripture, so you assume they're not as big of a deal. They're huge. Any great leader will never dishonor their administrator because they know dang well that's the parent in the relationship. <laughs> what I'm telling you is we need people to rise up, not just all across the planet, but right here in Bridgeway. We need people to rise up who have an organized sock drawer. <laughs> Amen? Because there are some of us, it's all willy-nilly in there. <laughs> right? And I understand, those of you that are organized, I know you fight the dryer. I know you need to wait and make sure both socks come out. I agree. <laughs> right? I don't know what's happening there. It's a pit way to hell. I understand. Match them together, ball them up, praise the Lord. Okay. Because we, we need the administration, we need the organization, we need the behind the scenes strategy. We don't just need more talkers. And, and what I'm telling you is you're about to watch God raise up this whole level of the church that allows it to have the support infrastructure to explode. This is those leaders. I just have to beg of you, if you have ever downplayed your gift, please see it the way God sees it. Please see it that you are necessary. Please see it that you're valuable. Because you know who solved this problem? I think it was an administrator, right? Sure enough, Peter's going to come out, right? I don't think they trust Peter to make lunch plans. You know what I'm saying? That guy's a train wreck. He comes out, and he's like, we have a plan. You're like, no, Barbara has a plan. 
You're just the one that talks about it, right? We all know this. Okay. So sure enough, we pick it up in verse 2. It says, and the 12, right, they summon the full number of disciples. Remember, why is it now public? They got the whole church together for this. It's public because the problem was public. If the problem and the hurt is public, you have to have a public meeting to solve it. Otherwise, people think something nefarious is going on under the covers. Do you understand what I mean? So, it was a public hurt. It was a whole ethnic racism. They're like, all right, we got to address this, get this out in the open. Let's talk about it. And it says, the 12 summoned the full number of disciples. They said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers... And sisters, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. All right. If you do not know the heart of the twelve, you're going to read this wrong. You're going to read it in a very callous and arrogant way. Here's how you're going to hear it. Peter would go, hey guys, hey guys, bring it in, bring it in. Hold on a second. Okay, here's the deal. We're trying to do our jobs, right? We're trying to make this whole church thing work, but now we're having problems. People are like, oh, I don't have food. Anyway, I'm like, listen, I don't got time for that. I mean, I'm out here trying to write my book, right? And now all of a sudden you're like, oh, we need someone to wait tables and everything. Listen, listen, you know what? Santa had his little helpers. We need some little helpers here. You know what I'm talking about? Like I need some people to step up, all right? I need you to make some copies for me. All right, cool. But I'm telling you, I'm not going to do that kind of low-level work. You know, I got some business to do. I got preaching, got prayer. If you start hearing that, you missed their heart. These are men that will die for their church. They will die for Jesus. They love this place so deeply. Please do not read that that way. Because here's their true heart. This is how it would have sounded. Hey, guys, we have a problem and it's not okay. Man, we would do it ourselves, but we have a very niche role here. Jesus told us we are, other than uh, Joseph, Barsabbas, who he's on hold right now, right? Like all of us were the only ones, there was only 13 of us that ever started out with Jesus all the way through, saw him die, saw him get back up. We're a very niche group. Therefore, we have a very small lane we're allowed to work in. You see, Jesus told us we would be witnesses, and we can't make anyone else do that. We can't delegate that opportunity. So here's the deal. Trust me, we would do it if we could. We don't have that kind of bandwidth. What we're going to need is we're going to need help. We're going to need to raise up other leaders. Now, here's what I hear is, as a leader when I read this. There are a lot of leaders that think they're Superman. They're going to do it all. I'm also going to preach, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to wait tables, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. You're not delegating because you have a control problem. You understand what I'm talking about? If you want something done right, you do it yourself, right? And what I see is a humility for them to delegate and say, we can't do everything. We're going to need help. And they distributed power to another level of leadership who you're going to find out is really intense, really, really hardcore, right? All right. It says this. It says, I want you to select out seven, and here's what I want them to do. I want to make sure that they are men of good repute. Anybody know what the word repute means? I did not. <laughs> Looked it up in the dictionary. Here's what it is in Greek, marturio. 
Doesn't that sound a little bit like martyr? Same root word. Martyrio actually means to be a witness, to demonstrate God plainly. So what do they need to be? They need to have a reputation that they're all in with Jesus and they will go all the way to the wall and die if necessary. That's hardcore. That's what that word means. They need to be full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Under the power of, under the governance of, under the direction of. They need to be full of wisdom. Do you know what wisdom is? Knowledge is facts, points of information. Wisdom is how to connect those points. Godly wisdom is you realize that only God knows the right way to connect the points, so you're discerning his voice on how to connect those and create true wisdom. He said, I need people that can do that. Now, you're going to find out. These guys may not be apostles, but they are miracle workers. Our next two messages outside of Easter, our next two messages are all on Stephen, the first guy mentioned here. This guy is off the charts amazing, right? We're going to talk a little bit about him. But how did they know who these leaders were? Because the congregation brought them up. They all have Greek names. You know what? I think they were already known as tremendous servant leaders. And the congregation is like, I got one. Stephen, everyone's like, oh, yeah, dang, yeah, absolutely. Another guy's like, well, I got Philip. He's like, yep, that's another good one. Write these down. They were known by reputation. You know what kind of scares me? I look out and I see you. And all I see is potential. And what scares me is there are game-changing leaders, and I don't even know your name. Why does that bother me? Because I think truly Bridgeway could go to a different level if you utilized your gifts. And I don't, I don't know your name. Why do I not know your name? Because it's possible that maybe you come and then you just leave and you don't plug in. You see, almost all the high-level leaders around here, we watch them get vetted through serving in other areas. Because you say, well, how does Bridgeway select their leadership? I'll tell you right now, it's super simple. The more accountability I have to have, the smaller the pool gets. If it's something that's brand new, we're starting out, or it doesn't have to do with taking care of somebody else's life, it's really wide. Anybody could come in and go, man, I'm newer to the church. I've only been here like six months. I would love to do that. We're going to try to train you. But if it's an elder, where all of a sudden it kind of rises and falls on you, you have to be an ambassador that is full in, you know everything about Bridgeway. Well, that's a very narrow category. You must have served in some other area so we can know who you are, so we can make sure that you're vetted and you're safe. I don't want to put anybody unsafe in charge of other people. Does that make sense? So we're going to do it kind of that way. All right. But then all of a sudden, they follow their calling, these deacons, they rise up, and the word diakonos, which is where we get the word deacon from, which we find out later is who they are, do you know what it means in Greek? It means helper guy. <laughs> like that's on their business card. What are you? Are you a deacon? Yeah, I'm helper guy, or I'm helper girl, because you'll find out there's a deaconess group that gets started as well. Okay, so here's my point. Somewhere along the way, there became this separation between laity and priesthood in the church, but it wasn't that way at the beginning. It was smushed way back down here. And the high-level people in the church were called helper person. You know why? Because Jesus at the Last Supper washed the disciples' feet and said, if you're going to play on my team, 
Hire the title, greater the servant. You know what your job is to do the higher your title is? You serve more people and you empower them and you release them. You get them what they need and you let them go. And then they go and do great things for the Lord. You know what your job is? Support them, support them, support them. That's how we do it. That's our world, right? I know that's not how it is in the world. That's how it is in our world. Well, so they started calling the big dogs helper guy, sent guy. That, those are the title, overseer guy. Like that's all they had because it wasn't fancy. It was practical. And it was based on their calling and their gifting and their assignment. That's how it works. So sure enough, we get to meet these guys. So let's kind of go through the list. Go back to verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And faith means if God says it, you believe it, that settles it. You know what I'm talking about? Like he may have had questions, but he doesn't let doubt shut him down. He was all in all the time. You're going to find that out. Okay, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip. Philip later is called Philip the Evangelist. We're going to read a story about him. He ends up having prophesying daughter, all this different cool stuff. And then the third guy, Prochorus, nobody knows. Total bummer, right? It's kind of like, hey, my name's in the Bible. They're like, what did you do? I don't remember. Awesome. And then Nicanor is after him, which is like, Meh. I have no idea. Thankfully, we know the next guy, Timon, he's a meerkat. He actually has a partner named Pumbaa, who is a warthog. Beautiful singing voice. And then the next guy is Parmenas. And then it says, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, interesting side note, tradition says, now tradition is not always correct, but tradition says that this Nicholas is the same one who launched a group called the Nicolaitans. Unfortunately, in Revelation, God has a message about them. He says, hey, to this particular church, I'm really proud of you because you don't listen to that group. You don't like them and I don't like them. What's my point? It is likely this guy started out awesome and fell apart along the way. There, are there not great leaders that start out brilliantly and fall apart? Have we not watched that scandal happen over and over and over again? You don't, you don't assume that just because they went bad that they started bad. A lot of them started beautifully. They just couldn't hang in there. Something wrecked them. They got kind of spun out by the devil. You know what I'm talking about? So we've got to be careful on that. Verse 6, and these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. Okay, quick question for you. Why are Christians so touchy? Fair question? Yes? Now, if you're not a touchy person, you've recognized this, right? So first of all, we're super huggers, right? Oh, bring it in, bring it in. And we're always hugging everything. You're like, ew, okay? A couple of us are close talkers. Yeah, nobody likes those people. All right, praise God. All right, keep a little distance. Thank you. And then we end up kind of having all these things that touch, right? So for example, we're like, hey, Pastor Lincoln, he's on staff. We're going to do a commissioning. Reach your hands out. We're all going to what? Lay our hands on him. We're all going to touch him. It just seems so strange because we're commissioning him as a new pastor in our church. Okay, great. Then all of a sudden you go, well, I need prayer. My knee hurts. I'm going to go up to the prayer team. And they're, they're like, okay, what can I pray you know, for you? And you're like, well, my knee hurts. They're like, may I lay my hand on it? <laughs> the heck, bro? My knee hurts. Don't touch my knee. What are you doing? 
Why do you keep touching me? Everyone's trying to touch me here, okay? <laughs> Why are we so touchy? Okay, I'm going to tell you, and this is going to make it more creepy. You ready? <laughs> Here's why. It is the principle of impartation. Impartation means, I kid you not, Lord, what is coursing through me from you, may it transfer onto them. You're like, oh, it's cooties. Right? I heard this game. <laughs> right? No, no, no. I know. It's super, super weird. So what you're doing on commissioning is you're having leaders say, Lord, you have anointed me with a leadership assignment. I transfer that in the name of Jesus. Not that I'm going to lose it, but I'm saying take a portion of what is upon me and put it upon them. When you pray, you're saying, Lord, you have called and assigned me to be a leader for you, that you might use me as a conduit from heaven. Lord, whatever you have endowed me with and you're willing to work through me, may it transfer and heal this person. That is a beautiful concept, but just weird, right? And Christianity is weird. Okay, moving on. All right, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What does that mean? It means once all the Christians started using their gifts, playing their role, locking into their wheelhouse, staying in their lane, the infrastructure of the church exponentially grew and all these people started getting impacted. We're talking about different strata layers. We're talking about the priesthood even got impacted. If you want to talk about the most Jewish of the Jewish, we're talking about the priesthood. They come from a lineage, hundreds if not thousands of years, of their family were always Jewish, always Jewish, always Jewish, were always priests, always priests. Now all of a sudden, this Christian thing shows up. Now notice, it does not say they stopped being priests. Why? Jesus is the Messiah of the Jewish people. He's a Jew. He's the fulfillment of everything they've been longing for. They don't need to stop being Jewish. They just move forward into the fullness of what God intended for them. So what you end up watching is these priests would go, oh, the Messiah's here. Okay, let's do it. And they lean in. They become what we would now call, what, Messianic Jews. But they're still Jewish. There's something so beautiful that God was working in every strata layer, saying this group needs to be saved, and this group needs to be saved, and this group needs to be saved. But he can only work through a church that is healthy. And it's never going to be healthy if a few people do everything. It's never going to be healthy until everybody's locked and loaded in their gifts, do you realize the footprint of Bridgeway if all of us were utilizing what God gave us? It's massive. You're sitting in a room of a thousand people, and this is only one of many services. Do you understand what could happen in the greater Sacramento region, in Roseville, in Rockland, in Lincoln? Do you understand what could happen if you began to see yourself through the lenses that God sees you? that you stop thinking that someone else was called and you realized you were called. When you stopped realizing, when you stopped trying to believe that your gifts weren't enough, that you're unworthy, 
And that God began to say, no, 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 kiddo. I only work through jars of clay. Are you a jar of clay? Great, I can use you. Let's go do it right now. You see, as I close this thing up, I'm just saying, we can either just look at this as, wow, that was a fantastic history lesson, or we can make it personal. What things have sidetracked and ruined churches through the years? Let's talk about them. Distraction from main focus, scandal, inappropriate handling of finance. What else? Splits, trauma, challenges, right? I mean, what, what really ruined churches? All right, let's make it personal. Is that what has sidelined you personally? Because you're a minister of the gospel. What if all those things are the reason why you are not currently and actively ministering? What if you had a schism in your life? What if you had a separation or a hurt or a pain, and you're allowing that trauma to continue to dictate whether you can be used by God or not? What if you never healed up from that? What if you're the one that got distracted? What if you're the one that maybe lost sight of the vision God had for your life? What if, what if you're the one that has been mismanaging your funds and now your debt and working too hard is taking you away from the ministry? What I'm telling you is personal, appropriate leadership can get you back on track. I don't need you to be perfect. God never needed perfect people. There aren't any. But he does need ones that are healthy if he's going to flow through you without you also becoming toxic to other people. So our self-management matters. Our ability to say, God, here I am, send me. I have prepared myself for you. You're still going to be broken. You're still not going to be able to do everything yourself. You're still going to second guess yourself. You're still going to question whether or not the Lord sees you. Why? How do I know that? Because every Christian leader feels that way. What I'm praying, and this is what I'm going to pray for all of us, that God begins to renew a personal vision of how you and He together can change the world. Every one of us matters. Every one of us has gifts. It may not be fancy. Barbara may not have got her name in the Bible. But praise the Lord for Barbara right? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you. God, we have mistakenly looked at human beings in an order of importance. But God, if we're not you, we're just your kids. Lord, I know we all have different assignments. I just pray that you'd give us a vision that we would stop disqualifying ourselves or we would stop allowing our limitations to limit you, or Lord, that we would begin to heal that trauma that continues to press us and tell us we will never do ministry again. God, I pray for healing of that. In Jesus' name, I pray against the enemy getting a foothold and causing distraction. Lord, would you expose those traps would you expose the things that keep waylaying us or sidelining us and that you would allow us to begin to capture your vision, that we would begin to see what it would look like for us to be healthy, actively ministering in your power, in your authority, staying in our lane, using our gifts, playing our roles, and God, that your church would thrive. I just pray, Lord, that you'd give us a new way of seeing it. Give us a new way of seeing us. Reimagine us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.